Welcome to season seven of Jesus Has Left the Building. We'll hear from guests all over the country who've been engaging in creative, bold, and fluid, outside the box, I mean, outside the church building practices that have inspired us. Our topic of discussion has emerged out of intersectional feminism, leaning into feminist and womanist practices born out of the stories of women, ancient and modern, and are practiced by and include all people as we ritualize relationship. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast, where ministers, womanists, feminists, activists, scholars, authors, and liturgy makers have left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. Hello, listeners. It's Mandy here. Today's episode requires some context. Oftentimes, Marta and I record several conversations for Jesus Has Left the Building weeks or even months in advance, and then we decide how we want to organize those conversations into a coherent season. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded in early October 2022, and it features Rev. Dr. Anthony Scott and Rev. Aaron Gilmore, who were, at the time of recording, co-associate ministers of the Rocky Mountain Conference United Church of Christ. This conversation was slated to be released on November 26, 2022, as episode 7. On Tuesday of this week, November 22nd, we received word that Anthony's employment with the conference had been terminated. Marta and I didn't feel like we could just publish this conversation without addressing Anthony's termination, so we invited him back to the conversation so that he could talk about his experience. What you will hear in this episode is first, the entirety of our initial conversation with Anthony and Aaron, recorded October 6, 2022, and then a follow-up conversation with Anthony and Reverend Chris Gilmore, a representative of the Rocky Mountain Conference anti-racist team, which was recorded on November 25th. Hello, Aaron and Anthony. We are so grateful that you um, have joined us on Jesus Has Left the Building. Um, we are excited to hear what you will um, share with us um, as two people who have been serving in the Rocky Mountain Conference for a long time. Um, it's really exciting to have you in this space with us, especially because um, the Rocky Mountain Conference is our biggest sponsor of the podcast. And so having the two of you here, um, you know, both representing the conference, but also just being here as yourselves and um, hearing your stories as um, individual humans in the world who are doing really uh, important work is exciting. Um, so thanks for being here. Thank you um, for inviting us. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're going to start just with a simple, like, tell us about your work in the world. Um, and as you know, the focus of this season seven is um, really around intersectional feminist worship. But we're really thinking on the podcast about the ways that we lift up the voices that sometimes that oftentimes have not been centered or heard in whatever our contexts are. So um, if you can just talk a little bit about that work and how, what it means to you to lift those voices up in your particular contexts. I can start. Uh, so, um, right. So I have a, 
official title of Associate Conference Minister of the Rocky Mountain Conference, and that doesn't really say anything about my work in a title. Um, if I think about my work in the world in this moment, I think about navigating a liminal space, that there is a thing that was, and there is a thing that's becoming, and um, and and we're in the, uh, what I've heard too, and very, very many different kinds of metaphors, but the goo in the middle, the cocoon in the middle of the uh, caterpillar to a butterfly, um, all kinds of things, but we're in this liminal space. And a lot of my work has been around looking at uh, paradigms and paradigm shifts. And uh, I'm very aware in this work that we could rebuild the thing that we're trying to de deconstruct all over again. So, right, we're in this space where the old is gone or is, it's not all the way gone, but it's, um, it is collapsing or it is ending, it is changing. And we're trying to look to something new. And if we don't do this work of listening to the voices that haven't been listened into in the old system, then we are just gonna rec recreate the thing in the new system. So how do we compost and how do we let go of the things that really did not serve us so we don't build them into our structures as we try to build something new? Um, in all of my work, I feel like I think about as that, that framework of um, whether it's working with a committee on a search process or whether it's building this new committee on ministry or whether it's working with a congregation as they're trying to say, what's our purpose in the next five years? Um, Underneath all of it is this paying attention to what do we most value and then how do we actually create space for different voices, unheard voices, uh, unrepresented voices to help guide that new thing. So I'll, so I'll pause there. Yeah, so what does that look like? Um, because, well, so what does that look like and um, what, what does that feel like? I guess, um, because I know, I mean, you, you, you both are working with so many different congregations, so many different cultures, so many different contexts, um, demographics, um, all of that. So when you come to your, to your work and you start talking about liminal space and you start talking about um, what you can leave behind, what you can take forward, what, you know, deconstructing all of that, um, what does that actually, how does that play out? What does that look like for you? Um, without like, you know, divulging confidences and, you know, <laughs> right, right, right. all of that, yes, but yes. um, because I know, I know how hard it is and how messy it is and how frustrating it is right now. Um, I think individual pastors feel that way. I think congregants are just like grasping at what do we do next? They're getting this data yeah. from the Pew Research and you know, um, all of the things. No, I really, I appreciate that perspective, Marta, because um, I'm not in it in the same way as a local church pastor is, right? That day-to-day, -day, uh, we're in for a, a period of time or a particular moment. Um, so yes, it feels messy. <laughs> um, it feels like, uh, a lot of um, being willing to just be humble, like, ooh, yeah, didn't didn't quite um, didn't quite land that time, or you know, like just having 
ability to say, didn't get it right, try again. Like just being okay with failure is part of this reality. Like mm -hmm. that's a huge piece for me of what is my work about. It's like, if I'm doing my work well, I'm failing a lot. That's not a comfortable place, right? Because that means I'm learning. That means I'm listening. That means I'm trying something that hasn't been done before. And so you don't get rewarded in our culture for failure, you know, mm -hmm. um, in quite that way. So, uh, so it feels, um, it feels hard to keep going back. And, uh, and, you know, Anthony probably, we've had several of these conversations, but it also sometimes feels futile. Like, is anybody listening? Is anybody interested in building something new? That was really high voice. Um, right. It's like, uh, and I, I will have moments like, oh my gosh, I feel so affirmed as I build something or tried to create something or with somebody. And like, I'll just share a quick experience. Um, today, working with the conference-wide committee on ministry, we're building this new thing, right? Five different associations creating a new committee that's authorizing ministry and supporting ministers. And, and we built the model intentionally to not have a hero at the center, a, a leader on top. It's a cooperative of leaders. It's a collaborative from, from the structure. It's a collaborative, it's a collaborative structure. And people keep asking, but who's the head? But who's the head? Like there, there isn't, this is a collaborative structure. Leadership mm. is shared. And just mm. that resistance to like trying to relate to a committee, it's easier to relate to, but I just go to the chair but it's mm -hmm. not building something new, right? So the easy thing is go, oh, we should just fix it and have a chair, have a person at the top. Um, and I was meeting with some of the team leaders today where they're like, no, we are not doing that. That's not what like, they're, they were. And they were absolutely affirming the need for a collaborative structure and came up with some other possibilities of how we steer this thing without a leader at the front, right? So mm -hmm. it was an affirming moment for me, like, Oh no, people do want something different, mm -hmm. even as it's requiring more work from them. Mm -hmm. uh, that was like, that was a moment of yay. Um, yeah. But there are lots of moments that aren't like that, where yeah. it's like, please just do the easy thing. Or can we please just go back? Or can we please just find a simple answer? Um, that's probably more often the reality. Yeah. So one of the in one of the conversations that we've had this season, um, there's been several people that I've talked with and they have told me that I need to add to my list of criteria for an intersectional feminist approach, um, which has been great. That's part of the learning that um, I've done. And one person was fairly adamant that a criteria that you have to um, add in is discomfort. Mm it's gonna be uncomfortable to do an approach that for centuries, people have not um, been used to. It's, it's not comfortable, it's not what they know, it's not what they think is right, it's not what they believe. It's, it, so it is like completely um, uh, wobbling them in that space and like, I don't, I don't know if I can do this or not. Um, and I can see that in this particular case that um, that that is a wobbly structure for some people. 
they've never done it before. They're not practiced. They're not like, it's not, it's not the same ritual. It's not the same tradition. It's not the same practice that they're used to um, coming to it. So they, they have no idea how to even behave um, or perform in that space. Um, because that's what, that's what those structures do is they create spaces for that behavior and performance. Um, I think particularly in our tradition. Anthony, what yes. do you think? Well, I think a lot of things. So I'm uh, Anthony Scott, uh, Associate Conference Minister for the Rocky Mountain Conference. And I uh, lovingly call myself the uh, Junior Associate Conference Minister because uh, uh, I came after Aaron and, and we share in the work of being generalists in the conference. Um, and my specific uh, assignment um, concerns uh, racism and, uh, and the board of the Rocky Mountain Conference Board of Directors stated mission of establishing a sustainable culture of anti-racism within our conference. And so uh, I am with you uh, when it comes to uh, the experience of discomfort when talking about race with folks who uh, are not used to talking about race um, with something they've lived with all their lives and, has, and, and they are living into acting out ways of being that have been uh, modeled for them um, from time immemorial, uh, is, there's a lot of discomfort with uh, the recognition of what race is, uh, how the construction has functioned, and especially with the church's uh, complicity in establishing um, race, racism, uh, uh, prejudice, uh, white supremacy, which you could look at as ethnocentricity um, around, uh, I, I call him a guy named Vincent. I just made him up. A British guy, um, you know, we made created ways of of being and doing and knowing all around that uh, that fictional character. So I I, I am with you on um, the the discomfort when talking about voices uh, the, and peoples who are marginalized. One interesting thing, though, as you as you talked about the shared uh, leadership. Um, uh, structure that uh, intersectional feminism would like to kind of would like to see and establish in the world is the, the first among equals for this work in the conference. I I've not had challenge for this role of first among equal, nor have I had anyone who's willing to join me because my work makes me a target. Um, mm. My work is, is difficult. I endure great violence uh, in the course of my work, even when it's not about racism. I am the black man in the room. And so, mm. it's, so it's interesting to hear you talk about uh, a desire for, for curating and cultivating shared leadership and people actually wanting to live into that way of being and 
concerning racism uh, and, and, and the work of uh, the tagline I've, I've created for our ministry is disrupting, discrediting, and dismantling racism. Um, there, there are not people who are clamoring to, to join me there. And uh, I, I think, uh, and, and let me say that uh, Reverend Gilmore, my, the senior conference minister, associate conference minister, have, has been a, a, a wonderful um, uh, compatriot and, and uh, accomplice in the work. Um, and yet, there are not other voices clamoring to leadership. In fact, there are persons who've said, we want you to do this, who actually, who actually counter, try to counteract um, the, the actions to, to, to provide some, some scope and some sense of uh, a liberative work um, uh, from the perspective of race in this country, which is a, a foundational uh, sin. So tell me, can you tell me a little bit more about that? So just, I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm understanding Anthony. So you have this sort of role and job to, um, to teach and preach and lead through um, some anti-racist um, uh, teachings, um, but you feel alone. You feel like... Yes. You feel like there's that that people, particularly in our conference, are not showing up to um, team with you. Uh, I think uh, what I I think there are people who express support and willingness to be on the team and uh, and in community, mm -hmm. but not to lead. Mm -hmm. is what I'm saying so mm -hmm. it's it okay uh, so when I was uh for example when I was um on the ground in in Ferguson uh standing in protest and solidarity after the the lynching murder of Michael Brown uh leaving his his body on the on the hot street um for for hours um I I after after the actions of law enforcement doing that, there was protests that that arose and and galvanized um, young young people. And I guess I I am one of the young people. I I didn't know whether I was a young person or clergy because I was both. And and people would ask, you know, news reporters would ask NPR and CBS and ABC and everybody who wanted a piece of that action would ask, who's the leader? And we would like, there is no leader. And as Reverend Tracy Blackman says, our associate, our associate general minister for uh, for witness and local church ministries and local church ministries, she says it was a leader full movement. There were lots of people who were stepping up to put them their bodies on the line, mm -hmm. their their bodies, their reputations, their credit, so to say, on the line. And for this work, that that's not the same case. That's not my experience mm -hmm. uh, in the, in this region. Mm -hmm. So you said leader full. 
Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that, Mandy, a leader full. Yeah, um, I like that too. And I think, and- I mean, it totally plays into what Aaron um, was saying, you know, in a sort of Aaron, your story that you told is this microcosm, right? <clears throat> of Of this idea of, I think people, you know, sort of like the idea of um, a leaderful model, but they don't know how to wrap their heads around it, right? So your reporters, Anthony, are like, but yeah, but no, who's actually in charge here, right? Because as a culture, as a as a world, we cannot, we are so steeped in the hierarchical, in the patriarchal, in the this is the president or the CEO or whatever, um, that we cannot understand or grasp, grasp what it looks like um, to not have a leader. But Anthony, as you talk about, um, you know, what Reverend Blackman said, um, it, I'm just curious, do you, um, as a, as a Black man, do you experience that more flattened, leadership in um communities of color like is this actually a white person thing that we can't that we can't understand this more um you know leaderful um way of organizing and um you know people in other communities and other cultures that are not the you know status quo white like maybe they've got it figured out and we just need to like hold on a second and, and look at some of those models. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that, that question. Um, so I would say from my perspective as a black man, having been in, in some uh, communities of black people that cer- certainly not, we don't, I don't think I haven't experienced having a, a corner on Flat leadership models, right? Um, but I think that they they do arise and they are are forged. But um, what white supremacy desires to do, you know, the the worshiping the god uh, in the image of the imaginary British man named Vincent, mm-hmm. um, is to shape and form all people into this model of of ways of doing and being and thinking, and so. So yes. too, it influences ways that I think I could say all communities, at least in the United States, are told that they are to be in in leadership yes. and told that they are, are in ways of being in community and in relationship. And so there has to be a leader. There has to be a president. And so <laughs> when I um, was establishing the uh, uh, anti-racism ministry team in the Rocky Mountain Conference, I thought about that. I said, does there need to be a president and a vice president, and a secretary and a treasurer? I mean, does that, is, is that necessary or can this be what I refer to us as a, them in an in a email said, this, this collaborative, this is, our, this is our shared work, our shared labor. Um, so, so I don't, so I say I say all that to say, uh, no, I don't think that that any communities that I've been part a part of that are that are non-white that are that are black African American are 
have a corner on not desiring uh, leadership, but that's something that that's that's learned, right? Someone has to be the someone has to be king, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and I'm mindful of uh, there was a there was a podcast I I forget it I forget the name of it, but my wife calls it a trash trash podcast, not because it's trash, but because they talk about you know socials stuff, you know gossip, what's in the news, what's in the media, you know it's fun to listen to. Uh, and 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 I have fun listening to it as well. And one of the co-hosts of the podcast, uh, when, black women would say, "And when I'm king, I will do this." Mm. And so I think that that we are taught from our, our various social locations to to wait until we become king, so that we can lead in the way that that we. We want to leave, and I want to touch on the um, on the 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 discomfort, the the feeling of awkwardness around um, intersectional feminist leadership, and 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 that discussion that, that you're having widely with folks uh, and with racism. Sometimes when I when I probe myself about it, um, I realize that one maybe not the only, but one of the sources of discomfort is from me because I know it will make other folks uncomfortable mm-hmm. or at least I think it will. Mm-hmm. And so what, sometimes what I find when I walk in rooms of people conven- that, that are convened to talk about racism in, in the United States, I actually find that it was not bad at all, that it was a wonderful experience and that people were willing to, to join in. It, it's, 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 um, more so when I'm not expecting to talk about race, that it, that it comes up and it comes up in ways that are that are violent. Mm-hmm. So I don't know yes. about I don't know about your experience. If it's just like sometimes you know you, you're just you're just thinking, oh man, they're not going to know what to talk about. It. They're not going to want to talk about it. But then there's a flowing conversation. Like mm-hmm. I call to mind. I'm sorry. I keep on running because my mind keeps thinking of things making connections, trying to integrate. Um, about when you invited me to preach, Marta, for uh, a few months back, and and you expressed to me that it might be uncomfortable for me to preach on Mary in this text, uh, to preach from a woman's perspective. And actually, I I had heard, uh, I, I was like, I don't know how else to preach that, uh, that text. And I preached about uh, Martha, a woman who is, overlooked in that text, who is relegated to a role of service in that text, who is given two words of, of recognition in that text. So I was able to dig deeply into the role of women and particularly uh, being marginalized. Um, mm-hmm. And you thought it, that it might make me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's true. And actually, even in in the work that I've been doing in the last couple of months, because I've been trying to practice the actual project, you know, in the church setting, and um, it's so uncomfortable for me. But, you know, it's, you know, and I think it's so uncomfortable for me, and I don't know if I'm going to articulate this very well, but um, I feel like I'm holding so many different um, 
you know, pieces with the church. And, you know, if I don't, if I don't actually add in this traditional part, then people are going to get mad, but I have to actually practice this project um, in order to give it integrity. So I'm trying to hold that piece of it um, while just also opening it up for shared wisdom and truth, not knowing what is going to be like put into the middle. And, you know, it's one of those, like you're biting your nails. Um, because you don't know what's going to be said. Like it's, um, it's super duper risky and vulnerable. And, um, and there's a lot at stake, I think with the church right now. So it's, I've said, this is new, not the best season of, of church globally to be doing this project. Um, because, you know, we're coming out of COVID and everybody is ragged and um, traumatized and the last thing they want is for me to do something completely radical and creative. They want that comfortable um, place to be, but, but, it's, but it's the work and the work needs to be done, right? And so um, you just keep on trying to forge, to forge um, forward a little bit more. Um, I think, Marta, um, I wanna interrupt for a second because I think this goes back to something that stood out for me, Erin, when you were talking, you used the word compost. Um, and, and this idea of that, that has come up in the podcast on a, on a couple of um, episodes we've recorded already of like, so we've, we've, we've interviewed people who are um, starting new, brand new things. And we've interviewed people who are um, doing this work in, um, more traditional, already established contexts. And I'm just fascinated um, by this, like, you know, and I think Anthony, you talked to this as well, like this idea of um, what does it mean to do this work and not um, burn it all down, not throw the baby out with the bathwater? Um, what does it mean to be doing this work because not all of us can start a brand new thing and that's not what all of us are called to do and I'm super grateful for the people who are um but I don't think that's what I'm called to and I don't think much of that's necessarily what you're called to um and I think you know the two of you as like holding the conference and all of these already established churches like um I don't know if I even have a question there, but like, if you have any words you want to how, say about yeah. that idea. I mean, how do we slowly start? I mean, I know that you're both practicing it in different ways at the conference level, um, in different, in different areas, but, um, I want to, I want, I sort of want more and I know not everybody wants more, but I want more. I want to be able to know. I know. <laughs> you gotta go home and my contract is over um but i do have a, i do have a response reverend gilmore do you have a response i do too uh, i will follow you though okay okay Whew. the scripture says in a, uh, i believe it's the book of isaiah God is doing a new thing. Can you not perceive it? And I like to follow up that quotation by saying, God is always doing new and renewed things. And we and we often don't perceive it. And so like going uh, to Aaron's composting analogy, you're taking something 
matter that has died, matter, matter, organic matter, matter that once lived, uh, that uh, has expired, allowing it to um, go back to nature, go back to its essential component parts, right? And you're going to use it again, and it's rich and it's fertile. And I, I believe that sometimes you can do that kind of work, that work of of uh, confrontation and grief and lament and um, disassembling, disintegrating pieces, and then reintegrating what is what is meaningful and valuable in the next season. But as it comes to my work with uh, Concerning racism, uh, I believe it has to all be thrown away. Mm. The, the the ways that the structures have been built um, have racial prejudice uh, and and vitriol in the actual brick and mortar. Or maybe you like frame houses in the actual wood that, that grew from the trees in the ground. It, it actually sucked up mm-hmm. some of that nutrient from the soil, which mm-hmm. was racial prejudice. So I think that for, for the church, um, the, the church cannot die. I think what something, some things we may be experiencing and calling churches may die, but the church of Jesus Christ can't, can't, can't die. Um, and what, but what will happen is these these elements can go back to the soil and 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 through a process be uh, reclaimed and be used mm-hmm. again. But concerning this structure of of power and uh, and op- oppression, uh, it it has to be utterly dismantled. Mm-hmm. Or or renewed. Um, you think completely when you say renewed what do you mean well because I think that I what I heard you say was yes it needs to be dismantled but at the same time the church cannot go away so right the church the church cannot the the construct of of race and racism must be dismantled unlearned unplugged from what we understand to be church and that will take some some repentance um, some uh, ceasing to be in ways that we are, mm-hmm. and and going back toward what is good, what is holy, what is righteous, and that is God. Mm-hmm. Um, it's too hard, oh. but we're going to do it. I, I have thought of myself as a uh, uh, lately as uh, John the Baptist, and it, that's helpful because I was I, I, I'm an ordained ordained Baptist. That's my tradition of my youth. Uh, but I thought of myself as John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness, and really unsure if anyone hears the message. Mm. They want mm-hmm. they want new life, and they want new birth. They want resurrection, but don't want to confront. The sin, the the sin filled structures that mm-hmm. that make us and keep us comfortable. Mm-hmm. Can I read from Jamar's book? Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Okay, this is we're doing this book study right now. 
color, yeah, color, color of compromise. I, I don't know if it's, are we allowed to quote things? I don't know how these things oh, yeah, work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is color of compromise. Um, and just to, just to your point, Anthony, Christianity in America has been tied to the fallacy of white supremacy for hundreds of years. European colonists brought with them ideas of white superiority and fraternalism towards darker skinned people. On this sandy foundation, they erected a society and a version of religion that could only survive through the subjugation of people of color. Minor repairs by the weekend warrior racial reconcilers won't fix a flawed foundation. Mm. The church needs the carpenter from Nazareth to deconstruct the house that racism built and remake it into a house for all nations. Mm -hmm. Like so great. So Stop good. Mark. <laughs> Darren, were you uh, gonna have it? Did you have another story? I did. I just I I was listening, you know, like this serving within context that like in this already constructed space, not creating a new space. Right. And I think a lot of us are, I'm in the institution. I'm living inside the institution of Christianity as it has been built. And so there's always the question of like, I remember a John Dorhauer at some event, I think it was at our annual meeting or, or we had a special event with him. Anyway, he talked about a pie and a, pie, you know, like a sweet potato pie that's bad. You just got to throw out the pie. Like you can't. It's not. So I always live in this tension of like, how do you not throw away the church by, but, but get rid of the foundation upon which it was built. So I live with that tension and we live in, we live now, we work within existing churches, existing conferences. Um, so I, I don't always think that the work of this deconstruction is about old and new. Um, I think and, and so I've been trying to find like, okay, so what's different language? Because old and new sometimes just helps us, it, it bifurcates into, I do a new thing. Mm -hmm. The new thing could come through an existing congregation. It can be the church. It can, Jesus mm -hmm. of Nazareth can construct in that space, a transforming house for all nations. I believe that mm -hmm. to be true. Mm -hmm. I think it takes the criteria to which you're speaking. I think it takes willingness, all these things. But it's like, I want to hold out the possibility that we're actually using the wrong narrative of old and new mm. um, only, right? Like, mm -hmm. and, I, and Jamar's book is actually really helping me. It's like, are we going to be courageous Christians or complicit Christians? Are we about mm -hmm. conformity or about transformation, right? Mm -hmm. I think so many of our existing spaces are comfortable and conforming. We want to stay within the status quo. We want to stay with mm -hmm. what we've known. And we call that comfortable. But I bet if you push most of your people, is the church helping you transform your life? And then you have to, of course, go to people want their lives to be transformed. Mm -hmm. You and I have had that mm -hmm. conversation mm -hmm. a lot. But um, but I, you know, I think I guess I want to hold out the possibility that as you bring something new and creative, you will bring to people things that they didn't know they need that they are glad for. Right. And that doesn't mean it's always going to be, oh, that was so great. I so loved it. Like in the discomfort, people may find they actually were met with real food that they didn't know they were hungry for. Mm -hmm. Right. And so holding out the possibility that the changes that you seek, and yes, they might be small, it might be in small ways. There's still some things that are familiar and some things that are new, but to not approach that new thing like, oh, I'm going to make my people uncomfortable and it's mm -hmm. like, how do we hold out? Like that discomfort could be the very thing that breaks open that actual, like 
humus that brings joy mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know like um like what if something can be birthed out of that existing structure that is the structure still there the you know the institution still there but there's something that's birthing right out of it um yeah, yeah and then also yeah go ahead no no that's that can i can pause there well i was just gonna you know and and as we end our time together because i'm aware of the time um what does it what does it really mean actually to name um constantly and consistently that this is really uncomfortable and that's okay i love and, what anthony's saying all the time discomfort is not danger mm -hmm. right discomfort yeah. is not right like saying how do we how do we be help people be okay with that mm -hmm. that uncomfortable is not bad it's not mm -hmm. something we need to avoid there's mm -hmm. gift 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 in that discomfort mm -hmm. how do we tell those to, stories right and be able to name that like i'm gonna mess up all the time and and that's okay because it's in that space i think i even wrote anthony like a week ago and told him how i messed up um i don't know if he read into that but um I, yeah i was like you know i messed up this is what i messed up and this is what but i but that's important because that being able to be safe to do that anthony i mean you created a relationship where it was safe to do that so i just wanted to um name that uh i am I'm really appreciative of both of your work in the conference. I know that conference work is not for the faint of heart and that it is really, really, really hard. Um, but I appreciate what you are bringing. I appreciate um, how you are, you know, cultivating um, a little, maybe something a little bit different um, in the culture of the church um, and that you are modeling for all of us in our local church context. Thank you. Thanks, Marta. Yeah. Um, I certainly hope that it uh, feels a, like a partnership with a, with you in your work. And uh, um, I think the word I would leave with is like everything. I think all of this work, creating something new, what is that, or creating something transformative or um, being courageous church, uh, it all starts for me with relationship because it's mm -hmm. exactly right. Like, can we fail into relationship? I love that phrasing. Can we, can we um, hold account accountability uh, is like relationships essential for accountability to be real. I read it. I was just trying to look up this quote. Someone said accountability without relationship is punishment. And like, mm. I got to sit with that because um, so uh, accountability is absolutely essential. And I think we're really afraid because we're so afraid of losing the relationship. So how do we mm -hmm. cultivate these rela like relationship is to me at the heart of all of this work. Mm -hmm. We have well, to do it together. Both. Yeah. Thank you both oh. for being here. Anthony, you can say one more thing if you want to. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, 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 my, I, my, my mind wanted back to scripture to John chapter five around verse six, where Jesus encounters a man uh, at the pool of Bethesda. And uh, I think that uh, there's lots of ableism in the text, right? 
But but Jesus encounters the man at the pool of Bethesda and sees the man and sees that he's been there uh, for, I think it's about 38 years and ask this man, do you want to be well? Do you want to be made whole? And uh, the man says, well, I've been laying here and every time the pool is troubled um, and the waters are healing, someone else jumps in. I, I can't move there quick enough. Um, and how I have always heard this text preached is that the man uh, wasn't asked, uh, why did you get in? It was, do you want to be made well? And mm. I think that sometimes we don't really want to be made well or 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 whole. Um, we don't want to be made made right because that is uncomfortable to, to leave mm. our positions. But then I look at this text today and I say, wow, there's lots of grief in, in, in losing our identity of who we were and what we did, even if those things were not life-giving for us. Mm -hmm. And so I, I see and hear that text differently and uh, recognize that our work, the work of um, intersectional feminism, the work of uh, anti-racism, the, the work of, of developing new ways of, of being and authorizing ministers. Um, yes. Induces a lot talk, of grief. We could talk about that. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, it, it, causes, a lot, it causes a lot of grief. <laughs> Uh, but from grief, if you follow the path of grief, the healing path of grief, something beautiful and, and, and new and renewed can be birthed on the other side. In Lamentations, it's, it, uh, there's a passage that said, God caused grief. Um, and we like to say, well, well, you know, God wouldn't do that. But I think grief is a healing process hmm. of, of recognizing what, what has been lost, be that a, a good thing or a painful thing um and uh learning how to how that affected your life and how to live without that thing into what is next mm -hmm. yeah that was good i'm glad you said that last thing <laughs> <laughs> i was holding it in i was holding it my, my my baptist was rearing up inside <laughs> no it's so good we've had more scripture in this episode than i think we ever had so thank you for bringing yeah. that i think we've yeah. actually had zero scripture in any of them. that's the <laughs> we needed the baptist to bring it i know all right well thank you both so much for being here we are grateful for you for this time and for your work We have invited Anthony back for a conversation to um, give him an opportunity to share the news of his termination and a little bit about how the work he had been doing in the conference was received. And um, Chris Gilmore, who is a minister in the Rocky Mountain Conference and is also on the anti-racism team of the Rocky Mountain Conference with um, working with Anthony and others um, is here today with us as well. So we want to just open up some space for uh, Chris and Anthony to speak a little bit into what is going on. Earlier this week, I was um, terminated from my employment and uh, with the with the Rocky Mountain Conference and. 
Uh, it was a shock and a surprise. Um, and um, I am convinced that um, in in the in the role I occupied, telling telling the truth about about systems which oppress, you know, can can uh, lead to lead to some retribution, and I think that's what I what I got. Um, uh, trying to trying to speak truth to power uh lead, lead can lead to to death or or lynching or or um othering uh disembodying and and that's what that's what has happened that's my understanding as you speak in the episode that we um pre-recorded anthony you um you talked about feeling very alone in your work um that was you know that was kind of a theme just in in that episode and um i can imagine that that is is even more more so now that you didn't really feel like there was um there were a lot of people who were stepping into that um that space of anti-racist work with you um and I can imagine that you're feeling that a lot right now. Most definitely, uh, there was there is a, a feeling of of aloneness that's intentional, <laughs> and um, how however uh, in this um, in this moment, what I have seen are people express their concern for me uh publicly and privately and and uh just and express their kind of outrage with what has happened and i and i feel like that is uh, uh, a sign to me an encouraging sign that that the work i've done uh, the, my presence through presence and and um, different um, forums that I've uh, occupied with 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 persons throughout the conference that, that there's some some fruit to that that people are are wanting to disrupt with a, with a view as an oppressive system and I'm like that actually is success mm. if my yes. if my job well if my call in the Rocky Mountain Conference was to um, help es establish a sustainable culture of anti-racism in the Rocky Mountain Conference, then having people say, wait a minute, something's not right here and begin to question what, what, they, what they view as oppressive and harmful toward Black people, toward people of color in the conference, then there's some success there. Um, well, and I think the way that you were showing up. I mean, you were called to come and do this anti-racist work. That was your call. And, you know, that can happen with book studies, check what you have done. That could happen with workshops. That can happen with retreats, right? But it also, and I think 
for me, one of, one of the most important ways that anti-racist work happens is to model it within the actual system to be working in that way, which I think, um, and to be offering models and structures and organizational systems that point to anti-racist work, right? So it's not all the way super explicit, um, but it is, in some ways, if that's all you did, that would be the actual work of anti-racist work. And when you're not, um, when there are barriers to showing up in that way, um, forget about the book studies, right? Forget about the retreats, forget about all of those other things. If you can't show up simply working in that way, then um, white supremacy is still so much stronger and more powerful in our structures, right? Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think there was some specific organizational structures and sort of work ethics that you were bringing to that space um, right. that were was the work of anti-racist that you did not feel welcome to do. Right, so, I, so I'll, uh, just for the sake of clar clarifying, so the job that I had had like two components. One was as uh, a middle judicatory executive for the conference. Uh, which is, which is, you know, every, you know, all the administrative functions of, of that level of conference ministry work. Um, and then the second component of the job was the anti-racism, anti-racism culture shift. And it wasn't evenly divided along the middle, you know, it wasn't, um, it was kind of like, you know, do a hundred percent here and then a, another hundred percent on top. Um, and and I shouldered that work, um, but uh, recently I, I uh, tried to introduce the idea of, uh, for for instance, challenging the use of Robert's Rules of Order, right, mm -hmm. as as a meeting uh, as a means of standing rules and meeting structure. One one thing I've said about um, about the work of anti-racism is that we must uh, address um, ways of doing and ways of being together, ways of holding meetings, ways of uh, organizing our our structures of governance. Right, all in there are. Uh, uh, are ways of, of holding community together that are intentionally or unintentionally uh, oppressive mm -hmm. and marginalizing. So uh, with Robert's Rules of Order, I have nothing against Mr. Robert. Mm -hmm. I have nothing against his Baptist minister father who, um, who uh, was having these church meetings that were unruly and his son, uh, wanted to bring some order to these meetings. And this is why he uh, established Robert's Rules of Order, which is based on a kind of parliamentary structure. And Robert's Rules of Order may be perfectly fine. Um, 
especially if everyone who's included in the conversation knows the rules and feels empowered to use them. But if you don't know the rules and you don't feel empowered to use them, then you have been marginalized, right? For, for uh, abuse and to be run over by people who think they know the rules. Um, And so I issued a challenge to that structure because, uh, uh, if um, we don't provide a a platform or avenue for everyone to un- to know and understand the rules, then perhaps we should create a, a new way of being together, which looks like more like uh, inviting people to come to a table and say, "Here's who I am. Here's who you are." What do we want to accomplish together? Something that that looks mm-hmm. feels more like a behavioral covenant that holds us together rather than uh, a parliamentary structure, which which is likely to to pit people against each other. Divide. Mm-hmm. How about we're we're building something together instead of uh, fighting to see who's right? Yeah, and we just. We had our first anti-racism uh, retreat in October to the, the team, and it, it was such a different kind of gathering. I mean, it was fluid and relational, and if we needed to spend more time on one subject, we didn't feel beholden to an agenda. Um, it felt spirit-led, and you know, but it was also done in a way where we could challenge each other in the, and, and hear it, not, not feel so like defensive, and we had a covenant to start, and it just, it had a whole different feel to it, and I, you know, that was one of the few meetings I've been to where I left, you know, feeling like my life was enhanced rather than depleted. Um, and it was, you know, we were find ways to be supportive of each other. It's, so, you know, and that was a great example of what we could do, you know, as just to change our structures in, in small ways such as that. Um, and I think the other piece that has kind of come to the surface for me and, you know, it's, it's just how, um, you know, if we say we're going to be committed to be an anti-racist conference or an anti-racist church, you know, the leadership has to be committed to that. And, and I, I don't think that's happened in the, in the way that we had hoped. Um, because, you know, to just to, to be challenged by some of the things that Anthony said, that's like, we should feel like, okay, great. We have this wisdom. Let's, let's hear it. Let's wrestle with it. Let's, let's um, you know, do some self-examination. Let's do some, uh, okay, well, you know, let's, let's talk about this. Let's discern. And, um, to kind of respond with defensiveness and um, and, to, and to you know conclude Anthony's ministry just feels like it was not a and then there maybe wasn't really a true commitment to to doing anti-racist work because um, it, it's going to get messy and it's hard and you know there's times where I'm like oh yes I messed up there yes I failed and but we you know I think we learn a lot more by failure than we do by just telling getting a pat on the back saying good job. You know, what's also interesting, and I was thinking it, thank you, Chris, um, for telling telling that story, because I think it, it leads me into this, um, just one little, one little piece I wanted to add in here, Anthony, and, um, and I would love to hear what anybody else has to say about this also. So like last night, I'm at, um, I'm at Thanksgiving dinner with, a, you know, a bunch of black and brown people and white people, and um, I'm, it was probably equally equal around the table. Um, and we're all super comfortable with each other. And um, it, what I realized is we were all throwing around the word racism. 
race and racism. And we were talking about it and we were talking about ourselves and we were talking, every single one of us, right? And it wasn't a bad word. Mm. That's, that's the interesting thing about this mm. is that if like we could all say, all of us, every single one of us, we are all racist and not feel defensive. We could tell stories about all of us when we've messed up because there were um, black and brown people that were in places of privilege also. So they could tell their stories of that. The people who were white could tell their stories of screwing up beyond the call of duty. And I just wonder, and I think in some ways, just knowing Anthony in the time that I have and using that word um, in spaces where he was trying to teach, um, you weren't using it as a bad word. You were stating a thing that needs to be stated so that we can learn from it. Um, as a reality, instead as, of as, as like a, a condemnation or a- Right. Well, that's, that's, that's right. white supremacy right there. What white supremacy does is it, it creates a dichotomy that says you're either racist or not. And so nobody wants to be a racist because then, you know, our, our, our understanding of what a racist is, is the worst case, you know, the, the George Wallace, the, um, the Ku Klux Klan, and we don't want to be that, but there, there's no room for middle for like people like me who, you know, are struggling with their own racism and the, the racist actions I participate in, you know, and, and to be able to share those without feeling a sense of like, I'm the worst. Um, but that's what white supremacy does. It, it, it defines those words that way so that we don't even talk about it. Right. And I actually think I wonder, and I'm going to give Anthony a second. I was just wonder if that was like, that's part of the core piece of what's happened. Um, and Anthony, you can speak a little bit into that if you want. And, and please challenge oh. that idea because it just sort of came to me the, early this morning. And um, well, that's a good thought. That's a good thought, Martha, because I think being someone saying you're a racist, that was it. It was and I think remains an attack line for some. Mm -hmm. um, my work, and I think the work of anti-racism is is to point out that we live in a system that uh, was formed in iniquity, mm -hmm. right, and the and the iniquity was always about um, upholding uh, uh, an ethnocentric identity as as supreme, <clears throat> and calling those people of European descent white, homogenizing this group, mm -hmm. and making the boundaries of it fluid enough to absorb other groups as it has uh, over the over the over the centuries. Uh, but then continuing to to oppress people who are who cannot fit into that group, right? Whose skin is is darker, whose ways of being and knowing are different than this um, uh, group of European descendant people. Um, and so we live we live in a, in a fishbowl that has been polluted with with this water. And we all live in it, swimming in it, breathing it you know, defecated and everything, you know, 
Uh, and so it's it's our normative ways way of being. And unless we challenge that, then we are complicit in perpetuating racist systems. Um, Beverly Daniel Tatum talks about um, racism as a you know standing kind of one of those conveyor belts in the in the in the airport that that we're all just kind of standing there on this moving walkway and the moving walkway is intended to move you in one way or the other and it will do that if you just stand on it it will move you and that's what racism kind of is it is that moving walkway so it's not enough to just stand still on the walkway you have to actually actively walk the other way you have to find a way to hop off um so when we call things racist or we use the term racism, we're simply talking about a system, not a person's negative traits. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Why can't we get our heads wrapped around that? Because, because, very good question. Because I, there was, a, there was an, and remains a campaign to keep that word so charged. Mm-hmm. That's part of white supremacy. Yeah, and I think um, you know, I'm just I'm just sitting here um looking at my colleagues and friends and and um all of us who, you know, are connected into the conference. Um, Jesus has left the building. Our, our biggest sponsor is the Rocky Mountain Conference Tributary Fund. Chris, you're still a minister in the Rocky Mountain Conference. Um, and Anthony, I know, you know, you're you're hold is tenuous now but who knows what that looks like technically i'm still an authorized authorized minister in the rocky mountain conference and we're of a rocky mountain conference church deal yep and i think like this is um you know this is one of the things that i think is so important for us as 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 the podcast jesus left the building like we we have claimed to be um, about getting outside of the institution, um, about trying to figure out how we follow Jesus. And so for me, this is, it's really important to create space, Anthony, for you to be able to tell your truth, even as I know that, you know, it's a little bit of a sticky situation, right? Um, for those of us within the system, but it's important to hold that space because we trust that the spirit can move us through these hard spaces in order to do the work, to move into a new way of being together that says, yep, that was, that was a shitty thing that just happened to Anthony, who is a black man in this institution. And here is how we are going to learn from that and grow from that and do better by Anthony, but also every other black man who steps foot into these positions, right? Um, Every other person of color, every other indigenous person, every other woman, every other queer person, how, how do we grow into the world that we want to be as an anti-racist community. So, you know, that's why we felt compelled to open up this conversation. And we want to announce that um, we're gonna continue this conversation. Um, We had been in conversation with Anthony um, 
before this week, but um, moving into this week um, and this termination, we feel like this is even more important. We're excited to announce that Jesus has left the building. We'll do a mini season focused on anti-racism with Anthony. Um, and that first episode will drop on Martin Luther King Day in 2023. It really focused on anti-racism um, and and the work, Anthony, that you are doing in the world. So we are super grateful that you are going to continue in conversation with us. And we know that um, your work in the world, um, you know, however that plays out is going to be so important. And we, we are really grateful that you are willing to do that work with us and our listeners. Thank you for, for the invitation and I'm pleased to accept. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony and Chris, both for being here to, um, to speak truth into this space. Um, do we have any just last words before we get off? I love the title, Jesus Left a Building. In some ways, that's kind of what we have to do. I mean, you know, it's still, it's not like the building, there's no one out there. Jesus is out there. And so many times the church, you know, we 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 get frustrated with the church. We're not frustrated with Jesus. And, um, you know, and so I, I really uh, like that metaphor, if you will, because you know, really, to, if we want to be serious about doing this work, you know, we have to, I mean, we have to get out of the building. I mean, the building's racist. The building's steeped in white supremacy. The church is the, is the building, I'm saying here, you know, and I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, in some ways, I, I wrestle with, can we really do it by staying in the church, or do we have to kind of start something new? Um, and I think that's always a tension for those who are committed to this work. Like, um, you know, I, I know before we even called Anthony, there was, there was like, you know, is this even fair to somebody to come in? Because have we done enough of our own work? And you know, like in hindsight, obviously not. And, you know, should the anti-racism team have been formed even before so that, you know, Anthony had support way before instead of, I mean, I hope there's a little more support now than there was, but, you know, it's it just, you know, to have him be so alone in this work is, is, is you know, that's not, that's, that's not him, that's our fault. And, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, as Mandy was saying, you know, if, just going toward the future if we want to change the way that we are it's going to require us to get out of the building and, and to really think think differently act differently behave differently and that's going to take a lot of messy hard self-examination if we want to if we're going to be committed to it and i know there are people that are but anthony taught us in that first book study you know i know that book was a little more controversial but but that's those are good books for book studies because we have better conversation but uh you know, it said if the leadership's not in, it's never going to, a company can't change if the leadership's not in 100%, including the CEO. And um, so if we're not going to have that, we, we're, we're going to be in the same place we are in the future. I'll just add an amen to what Chris has said. <laughs> Join us next week for a conversation with Aaron Bailey and Jen Fisher of Launchpad Partners called Unconference. If you like what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com backslash JHLTB. This podcast is made possible by the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Church of Christ Tributary Fund. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and message us to learn how you can be part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world.